What I'd like to do is continue uh, where I left off, which was picking up what Corrado started with uh, skill and the lack of skill. Uh, see if I can't link it up with self-knowing and the instructions that Corrado gave you this morning about the direct contemplation of mind, to look directly into the mind. Uh, and you have an opportunity to practice that right at this moment because in order to really listen, uh, it <clears throat> takes more than, than ears because the mind uh, has a life of its own and it will do what it does. And so to, in order to really listen, uh, you have to listen to your own mind in order to hear someone else, anyone else. Um, in terms of this uh, looking directly into the mind, the direct contemplation of the mind, some of what came up in the groups for both Corrado and myself was uh, as if we've sprung some incredibly new exotic practice on you. Uh, somehow we brought it here from Mars or someplace. Uh, we are making something explicit that uh, it's the core of uh, any wisdom teaching. Uh, so don't get uh, put off by the direct contemplation of the mind, looking directly into the mind. It is making something explicit as a practice that perhaps we've done in a way that's a little bit more come as it, as it comes, whatever, when uh, things are very vivid uh, about the mind, certain moods, etc., then we, we do it. Uh, and I think part of the reason, this is just speculation on my part, but I think it's true is that very often uh, there's an underlying attitude that somehow, uh, for example, being mindful of thinking uh, is somehow further down the pike. That's advanced. Now, I know uh, in the Burmese school you make mental notes, thinking, thinking, and so forth. Uh, so obviously uh, it comes in all, all along, but for most of us, uh, perhaps the body is much more accessible, the breath, metta, and so forth, tangible, something that we can um, wrap ourselves around, know exactly what it is we're about to do. Um, and thinking is something that for most of us is not really understood very well because it's not examined much. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, Let me review a little bit of what was said, uh, putting it in slightly different terms. Uh, growing out of Rahula's exchange with his father, the Buddha, the advice being uh, to be to reflect before acting as to whether something was skillful or unskillful. When you're acting, to see if, in fact, it has turned out to be what you thought it would be. If it isn't, stop. It. And even after an action, and here action includes a mental production, speech, and also uh, what we're more, more uh, likely to think of as action, physical action. Uh, even after it's over, there's some value in, in the long and the short-term 
reflection back on, gee, I thought that was really helpful, and during the time that it happened, it seemed to be, but now in retrospect, I see it really wasn't. And perhaps there's a bit of remorse, but the point is, again, if you recall, what was emphasized is learning. The Buddha is known as a great physician, uh, and his medicine is the Dharma. Uh, but great physicians can also be great educators. In fact, uh, ancient physicians had much more of that role uh, to prevent illness, education, teaching people how to take care of their health. And that's coming back slowly, more and more. Uh, so the Buddha is also a great educator. And uh, so that was what was told. Now, the, what is skillful is something that is turns out to be beneficial uh, for yourself and for others. What is unskillful is harmful. It produces suffering for yourself and others. If you get more precise, this comes up, and uh, again and again, of course, it's the kilesas. Some of you who are relatively new to Buddhism have done a lot of retreats, or at least this approach to the Buddhist teaching. Uh, perhaps the, the kilesas is... Uh, a new term for you, uh, sometimes called the, the uh, defilements. To me, that's a uh, archaic term, a little bit self-righteous, uh, kind of puritanically judgmental. But that's, again, uh, how I take it. And other terms for it might be toxins, poisons, ways of things that disturb us, that disturb the mind, that, that actually lead to suffering. And you... I'm sure I've heard this greed, hatred, and delusion, or attachment, aversion, and confusion. Those are, uh, and they're children. They're subtle ones. That if you look at them, they really are all coming from this same tree, uh, with delusion being the central one. Uh, I mean, not seeing things as they really are, even uh, the attachment and aversion grow out of the fact that we don't see clearly because we, we don't see that what we're doing is not in our own best interest. So finally, it's uh, delusion or ignorance is, is, is the root out of which it all comes. And if you recall, what I was emphasizing, and this comes out of the teachings, is the importance of being able to acknowledge your mistakes. Uh, if you can't, and this has everything to do with self-knowing, learning about yourself includes learning about ways in which you've been living that are unskillful, that don't work, that are harmful, that have to be unlearned. A lot of Dharma practice is unlearning, ways of living that simply don't work. And uh, what was emphasized to Rahul is the importance of delusion because that is so prominent, it's much easier to see greed and hatred. Want, want, want. Anger, anger, anger. Pretty much you know what that is. Delusion is much more difficult to recognize and understand. Uh, and that's why self-knowing is so important. You really can't see the ways in which you believe your own stuff. Honestly, you're not lying. You really think you know what you're talking about, not you, we. Uh, and seeing through that requires a sincere application of interest in, your, in the way you live and in your own heart and mind. And it's not just done on the cushion. 
my first Dharma teacher was Krishnamurti, uh, an Indian teacher who uh, was not of any particular de- denomination. And his first homework to me was pay attention as to how you actually live. When I, we went separate ways, that was the assignment. Pay attention as to how you actually live, emphasizing actually how you actually live, not how you think you live or how you should live. And the only way you can find that out is by paying attention. And self-knowing is something that happens, if you recall, I'm reviewing things, uh, in given moments. It's not self-knowledge. It's not the accumulation of insights and filling up a spiral notebook of it about the story of me and my life at IMS. Maybe you get it published somewhere, I'm sure. Not so sure about that. Um, self-knowing is something that's valid and helpful in the moment, and then it's uh, obsolete. It's a seeing of something, uh, and there's an intelligence in us, you could call it wisdom, that grasps something, and that's its value. I try to give some examples of how uh, sometimes a few of the questions in group and a few notes uh, suggest that skillful needs to be clarified a little bit more. There's no code book. Let's see, is this skillful or isn't it? You can get general principles from the Buddhist teaching, from the suttas, from what we say up here. But finally, uh, uh, it's in the midst of living that you can actually see that something either is or isn't. If you recall the stories of my mother and father, which I thought were pretty good about that, where you think you're doing something that's wise, but if you pay attention, you see it isn't. And the reason it isn't is because uh, what you were doing was sensible in the abstract, but it didn't fully clearly see uh, the exact conditions that you were living in. The mind wasn't fresh enough to be able to see how it is right now and what's beneficial right now for this particular situation, which may not be valid five minutes later. Okay, so understand, not only is it not a mechanical process, self-knowing and learning, and all real learning, sure, there's a rote element and there's a repetitive element, even in our practice, in, out, in, out. We do a lot of things over and over and over again, and there's a challenge to be fresh, to stay fresh. But the real learning is not repetitive. Uh, There are different kinds of discipline. One discipline is sort of following a schedule, getting up at the same time, sitting for a certain length of time, or retreats where you're required to make every sitting. I've been in practiced in places where, uh, certainly in Asia, where uh, if you missed a sitting, a monk would come and seek you out. Where are you? Why aren't you sitting? It was required. There's some value in that. That's one kind of discipline. I would say in the long run, I found that less and less useful, although for some people, helpful. The other kind of discipline grows out of learning itself. And remember, I was trying to convey, or at least it's... uh, wish, that perhaps we can learn how to love to learn how to live. Just as you all have things you love to do, skills and crafts and art forms, uh, what the Buddha is say, the Buddha is central to the Buddha's teaching is he's saying he puts human skill there. He's saying that we have, there's great hope for us. Uh, and now you get little uh, things that kind of reinforce it, the research of, of uh, 
that's coming out on the brain, uh, testing meditators. It used to be uh, taken for granted that the brain at a certain point doesn't change after a certain age. And now the, uh, the whole notion of neuroplasticity, we see the brain does change. But one of my teachers, and he wrote it in 19, late 1920s, in an exchange with scientists, made it very clear. You can feel something going on when you're meditating and it's really happening, that something's going on inside too. At any rate now, we can con- confirm it scientifically. We see that Tibetan monks who are meditating much of their life, their brains are different. And even somebody who starts at a certain point, not all that long, and not a, let's say, a professional, meditate, something happens to the brain. So there is hope for us. Uh, There's great confidence, perhaps more than we have in ourselves, that it's possible for human beings to learn. The human skill is right in the center of the Buddha's teaching. Uh, which is perhaps a little different than a lot of other religions where that's part of it, but really we're waiting for some other power to somehow come down and take care of us. Which may be an oversimplification. But, um, so that's part of it. Then again, that throws a responsibility onto us. Saying, if you're having a hard time now, please examine that because at least to some degree, you're contributing to it. So that self-understanding, self-knowing, learning how to live, no one can do it for us. We have to do it for ourselves. The Buddha said all Buddhists do is point the way. Each one of us has to walk the path by ourselves. Maybe we don't like to hear that, uh, but that attracted me to this path, also that you could inquire and question and doubt. Uh, that one of the meanings, a central meaning of of right view is understanding that there's lawfulness in the universe. There's a a causal, causality at work. Here's, uh, you may have heard this. The Buddha says this more than once. When this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the stopping of this comes the stopping of that. That's from the Anguttara Nikaya uh, 1092, if anyone's interested. Uh, that means if we're suffering through inquiry, through paying attention, uh, we can start to unravel, uh, but the unraveling is in the mind, and that's why the ability to acknowledge mistakes and to not see them as demeaning uh, but to actually be strong enough to be able to, in a way, welcome them because we learn from our mistakes, or at least it's possible to. This is true in every art form. If you're a writer, those of you who write, uh, I've done a little bit of that. There's dramatically many more pages in the waste paper basket than ever finally appear. There's a huge amount of stuff that you reject. Same with, I would think, any other art form. And so, uh, but to, to, uh, to accomplish that, to, be, to develop that kind of openness, which many of us don't start with, we have to overcome a lifetime of blaming others, of avoiding things, and of having uh, something learned by paying attention that shatters some image of ourselves, 
are taking that so personally that we then back off and don't want to do any of that anymore. It's too painful. I'd rather have an erroneous image of myself. And so it takes courage. It takes humility. And uh, so I'm, I'm reviewing this because I want to get to a few more concrete examples. And if you recall, someone once asked the Buddha some hints about hints about noticed, being able to tell about wisdom about a person. And uh, wisdom in the, in the way in which it's used in the Buddha's teaching is not simply memorizing the Dhammapada and being able to quote it appropriately, which can be useful too. Sometimes a quote from the scriptures at the right time for someone uh, can make a difference. But wisdom is something that you have to become. You live. You, you become the wisdom. We don't start there. And so the words are fine. In fact, uh, Rahula's teaching, the teaching to Rahula, of the skillful and unskillful, if linked with another very important teaching of the Buddha, the Kalama Sutta, sometimes called the uh, Charter of Freedom of Inquiry, where the Buddha comes through a town uh, to me, very much like Cambridge, Massachusetts, where endless teachers and teachings coming in with, you look at a bulletin board, smiling faces of teachings for every tradition, all of whom have the best teaching, the oldest teaching, the quickest teaching, with beards, shaved heads, uh, the fastest way. It's staggering. And the Buddha comes into a town like that and they say, okay, what, here's another one, huh? Now, what are you going to lay on us now? We already, we don't know what, we're confused. And the Buddha surprised them. He says, look, there's doubt in your minds because a lot of things in life are doubtful. Have you seen that yet? There's a lot of baloney out there. And in us. Okay. And he says, to make it concise, to not give absolute authority, let's say, to texts, to, to teachers, to something because it's ancient, because of logical power, because of inference. He lists, I think, ten. It's not that they're worthless, but to not give absolute power to them. Uh, and finally, uh, to, if it, to take a teaching and to test it in your life. You can't just figure it out in your head. That might be good to give you preliminary confidence and faith, what Karada was talking about last night. Faith in what you're doing. You have to have some conviction just to, to arouse the energy to get going and then to find out if, in fact, this teaching helps you. But in order to do that, you really have to do it. And you can't, uh, if you don't do it and then conclude that it doesn't work, well, that's like having medicine that your physician gives you and putting it on your altar and bowing to it every night and getting all teary-eyed, reading all the benefits it has, but never taking it, and then wondering why you don't get well. Got to take it. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, my first Buddhist teacher was a Korean Zen master named uh, Sung San Sanim. Some of you know him. And he used to, uh, a few of us used to bring him to Cambridge every Friday night, and he would give a session at Harvard University. And one time... He was sitting up here, much like I am right now, and there was a group of people about this many, maybe more. And 
He came many, many Friday nights, and he would give this teaching again and again. Finally, someone right in the front row, uh, and Sansanim had very thick glasses, and someone uh, obviously annoyed and said, I've been coming here for all these weeks, and you keep saying the same things over and over and over again. Sansanim got quiet, took off his glasses, you know, like that, and he said, he only had about 15 English words, you know, and he said, uh, this is true. I say same thing over and over again. He said, have you done it yet? <laughs> Full stop. Yeah, and so in response to how, do you, how can you tell, uh, there are a few rough guidelines. One is if you want something and it's also skillful, great, that's easy. That's a no-brainer. Or if you don't want something and it's unskillful, another no-brainer, of course. The hard one is you don't want something. You don't want to do it. And it is skillful. Called for. That's, uh, that's a harder one, isn't it? Or, see if my logic holds up at this hour. What did I say first? You don't want to? Yeah. You do want to. You do want it. And it's, uh, and it's really harmful. Uh, and you don't do it. Now, I'm going to try and... Uh, I would make time for an example. I want to give you a few examples from... Um, uh, to, to show you that this idea of skillful and unskillful, it runs through all the teachings of the Buddha. It's very practical. Another advantage of it is that it's cross-cultural, it seems to me. Like if you, it seems to apply. It doesn't matter what your religion, what your ethnic group, what country you were born in, what language you speak in. You're this cultural uh, pre, uh, concern, that cultural concern. Are you suffering? If so, how come? And investigate. Do those things that lead to your happiness. L- unlearn those things that are not working. So it's a uh, very concrete, but. It's not something that you master by hearing a a talk like this. It's a lifetime, in my opinion, I've been at it a while, it's a lifetime of work. And the joy is in that journey, in the refinement. Uh, For example, if something's skillful, do it. If it's unskillful, don't do it. What is skillful? What is unskillful? Sometimes it's not clear. Or we're doing the best we can and the degree of clarity of seeing is such that uh, we do the best we can, but it isn't very good. And so we mess up a lot. And that's where the, the willingness to learn comes in. To little by little, start refining your ability to learn. But then that means you have to have real interest. It's a kind of quiet passion to move towards sanity, towards freedom, and away from madness, away from conflict, away from inner toil, turmoil, away, away from all the things which seem so normal and difficult for us. It isn't just a matter of sitting a lot and how many retreats you chalk up. What do you do on the retreats? What do you do when you leave the retreat? Uh, are you learning in such a way to, to just use the Buddhist standard to let go of suffering, to see that which needs to be let go of? And the letting go, when it really matters, comes from understanding, not just willpower. I haven't found willpower to be that reliable. Sometimes you need to exercise restraint. 
because it could be dangerous. You're not there yet, but you exercise restraint because you know better. But the understanding uproots certain things, and then uh, it's a it's a different quality of action altogether. Um, A few examples of what what is skill, and to link it up with the mind. What when we're suggesting to look directly into the mind to con- contemplate the mind, what we're encouraging all of us to do is to more and more develop some familiarity with the way the mind works, the way your mind works. So that, that becomes something that becomes a normal part of your life. There's nothing exotic about it. It is possible to carry out living, your job, etc., and at the same time know what the mind's doing. To be more and more sensitive to your motivations, why you're doing it, the more and more to your reactions. Uh, at first, of course we won't be doing that. And at first, if you recall, Corrado uh, emphasized the importance of patience, because particularly let's take something like thought. It's so easy to get sucked into it. We've been doing it for a long time. We've not examined thought. We don't fully understand what thinking is. We're too busy doing it to understand what happens when we're engaged in thinking. And this is saying, stop, slow down. What happens when you think? And as you get to know thought, the knowledge liberates you from it. There's a, a new, it's new to, new to me, it's about a year old in Cambridge, a bumper sticker on our, a street adjacent to the center in Cambridge it, where it used to be, I'd rather be golfing, I'd rather be fishing, I'd rather be swimming, I'd rather be anything than where I am, I guess. And it says, um, don't believe everything you think. And I'm, I practically am teary-eyed every time I read it. <laughs> I want to, and I, and I, at the center, when I give talks, is the person whose car that is here. <laughs> I just want to go up and give him a big hug. No one, no one's ever come and claimed it. Because if they just do that, not believe everything you think, what a difference that would make in life. So, but here, we're not leaving that to a bumper sticker. Uh, we're taking it on as an actual practice so that we can learn how to do that. It is something that you can learn. The skill of, learning, of living is something that can be learned. And it, has, and it doesn't matter how old you are or what your condition is. Some of you might, might at this moment be thinking, you know, that's all right if you're 20 years old, but I've been around the block a few times. It has nothing to do with that. We're always starting right here and right now with who we are at this moment. If you don't have much mobility, you still have a mind. How are you relating to that? If you're aging, how are you relating to aging? Are you, is it suffering? Are you denying? Are you pretending that you're still 25, dressing like you're 25 and you're 60? And no one's telling you how embarrassing it is? <laughs> it, does it take something like, in my own case, someone giving up a seat on the tee in, in Boston <laughs> for me to realize, you know, I get on the tee, per, I'm holding on, and a young woman, about 21, 22, smiles at me, gets up. I assume she's getting off at the next stop. (laughs) So, you know, I thank her. I sit down. 
and she doesn't get off at the next stop. And then the next stop, and the next stop. At a certain point, I got it. She sees me as like, hey, pop, old timer, you know, a little, a little tired on your feet? Take a load off your feet, old timer, you know. And I sat down, my mind got hysterical. <laughs> you know, I'm the one who gives up my seat for you. No one gives up their seat for me. I'm a gentleman. I do that. I've been doing that all my life. It's the first time anyone did it for me like this. And that's the mind. But, but I'm not a beginner. I've been doing this for a while. And I've been looking at the mind for quite a while. Because I was started that. My first teacher started me with that. It's not just for advanced people. And I could see it. And it calmed down. And I saw, my God, how invested I am in being a certain way. How much resistance to aging. How much resi- what, that I had an image that was inaccurate. That I was attached to the image without even knowing it. And that it crumbled right in front of me on the T in Boston, going from Brookline to Harvard Square. And I had the opportunity to wise up just a little bit. So the same is as we grow older, periodically grow ill and so forth. We always have the opportunity to grow in wisdom. It has nothing to do with what age, but you have to be interested. Um, uh, we've been emphasizing the little sutta I'm going to read to you is a risky one. And I debated whether I should do it or not. But I think I want to do it. I know my, where my heart is. I don't mean it to be hurtful to anyone. And I think it could be useful. And it's a wonderful example with tremendous riches pointing out how everyday activities through mindfulness can be improved and at the same time develop wisdom. Um, Master Shengen, who some of you uh, may have heard of, uh, what we're trying to emphasize here is that practice, that there is just daily life. When you're here, it's not like the real world's out there and this is some fake world. This is yogi land, and then I don't know what's not yogi land, I, what idiot land. Or uh, The point is, it's just life, and we have this one mind. This is an ingenious invention for a group of people to come away for periods of time, to li- even live here, and to create situa- a situation, design it, to help us practice getting to know ourselves and getting free. And most of us don't stay here. We go back to worlds that include work, family, relationship. If you're in a relationship, you want to get out of it. If you're out of it, you want to get in it. Raising children, being bossed around, whatever it is. Bossing other people around, being unemployed, being wealthy. Uh, we, we go back to a world with not monks and nuns. We need a teaching that's appropriate for us. Hmm, I'm wondering if I have time for this sutra. I may get to it next time. But at any rate, um, here's from... So what we're trying... When we emphasize daily life here, take, to real, why do we insist that you... Unless you have a medical reason. If you have a medical reason, of course it's fine. To take whatever yogi job you're given. And if there's some friction there, it's abrasive, you don't like it, there's resistance, practice with it. Now, again... Take the yogi job, looking directly into the mind, 
What it is is, let's say you're doing pots. It seems like everyone today is doing pots. Is there anyone doing anything else here? I think I heard about seven pot washers. Uh, you're doing pots. The practice is to just do pots, to be intimate with the practice of pots. Well, what does that mean? That means just what it sounds like. To There's the, the function of however you do it, the things you have to do to get a pot clean. Water, a pot, soap, you tend, you, uh, stuff you use to clean it, whatever you need. And there's this mind that hears it, and you can get the pots done beautifully, it passes inspection, and you've been on the Riviera the whole time. Or what you're going to do with your summer vacation in a month. Or the walk you're going to take after this is over. Or hating it. Feeling degraded by having to do a toilet or or bored by it. Or like, I do vacuuming at home. I didn't come up to the vacuuming here. Well, do vacuuming. And what does it bring up in you? Those are opportunities to learn the lessons. See, skill is learned in this approach, skill in living. It is learned from wise people. They are helpful. In that Kalama Sutra, it's not simply to trust your experience. Certainly, finally, you have to decide. And in Zen, they say, don't put anyone else's head on top of your own. But the counsel of the wise counts. There are some people, if you're trying to learn a skill, usually it's helpful if you have access to somebody who's mastered that skill or who's gone pretty far in it. Uh, And then you have to do that, and then you watch what comes out of your actions, and you learn from it. You learn the lessons about living that come from your actions. That's a commitment to learn how to live. Okay. Uh, So what we're trying to emphasize, uh, typically retreats here at the end of the retreat, there's an integration talk. What I'm saying is there's no need for an integration talk because there's nothing to integrate. There's only one life. We're here, give it your best. Sit and walk and be quiet. When it's quiet and it's t- when it's time to talk, talk. And when this is over, exhale it. And then go back to whatever it is you go back to. And it's the same thing. Take each situation, live it fully. Let go of what's over. Now, when you're doing pots and you find that you're doing it and the mind separates itself from the activity, typically through thinking, as you get better at looking directly into the mind, what it means here is quite simply, you can hear the mind is thinking while the arms are doing pots. The pot is getting clean. It's perfect. You don't need to, uh, to devote everything to it. In the meantime, this is great, multitasking. You know, in other places you can do three and four. Here it's kind of limited. You can do three and four things at the same time. Some of you are doing it in the parking lot. Okay. Uh, there's always a criminal subculture on every, <laughs> on every retreat. There, there is. We know it. We know it. Okay. I'm a reformed ex-criminal myself. I've done retreats. Okay. Um, so when you, the practice would be you hear the, the mind thinking about something other than pots. That means you're separated from it. The Chinese say, uh, have a saying that when you're totally unified with what you're doing, you're giving life to life. It's not that the pots is such an incredible activity. It's that being alive is. And at that moment, your life is doing pots. That's what it's about.
We're learning how to, uh, and whether it's an important activity in your mind or a desirable one in your mind or not, whatever you encounter, that's your life in that moment. So we're learning how to live that way rather than to fanciful futures and pasts that are long over with, never to be repeated again. Okay, here's what, uh, so we're trying to understand it. <laughs> I'll get to Shangyan. We're not going to get to that sutta. That's obvious. Okay. Um, what we're trying to do is to understand you have a life here. And that if you get, can get into it here where it's safer, simpler, that when you get home, you'll carry on. And, and of course, there you'll sit less. And there'll be less quiet. And there'll be more action and talking. Fine. That's what, that's what is called for there. And so a practice becomes a way of living rather than just a set of techniques and special forms that you run to and then you run away from the ugly world. It's asking a certain boldness of us to learn how to live. And the best way to do that is you have to live and learn from the lessons that life gives us. Here's what Sheng Yan says. So simple. Practice should not be separated from living and living at all times should be one's practice. I'm going to give you a few examples. The, the one of, uh, it's on dieting, King, King uh, Pasinati. And um, uh, I was going to take myself as an example uh, so that you don't feel that I'm attacking people who have a little bit more weight on them than they would like uh, because I myself probably have enough corn muffins, blueberry muffins, blueberry pie, and apple pie in here if they were recreated Probably every cafe in Massachusetts could serve muffins and pies for the next 50 years. And they're all, it's a graveyard for pies. <laughs> pies and muffins. Okay. Okay. And the Buddha has an exquisite teaching on this. And it, it has wisdom and practicality. And it's about the health of the body and the health and the health of the mind. We'll get into it next time. Let me give you a few examples. No, we're not going to get into it. It's too long. It's too long. But let me give you a few simple ones. I'll close with a simple, two simple ones, what skill is. One not here. One comes from my wife. Uh, her mother was a physician. She's from the Soviet Union, a refugee from that, came here more than 20 years ago. Her mother was a doctor in the, in the Red Army during the Battle of Stalingrad. And so there was a lot of people were frozen. Many people died uh, of frostbite, uh, Germans and, and Russians. Uh, huge numbers of people died or were seriously uh, harmed by the cold. And so they were brought to the field hospital where she worked. And they, many of the soldiers were so frozen they couldn't eat. They were given food and they couldn't eat. And what she did... Uh, was she would ask the soldier, what was your favorite food? What food did your mama make for you? And they would say, kasha, or whatever they would say. And then she'd make it for them, and they could eat it. Interesting. Or here's another one which gets at why we need a genuine lay practice. Some years ago, um, a Theravad monk, a Westerner who was a friend, who I know him for some time, he came here and led a two-week retreat, and we, we know each other. We knew each other, and we still do. I don't see him much. He's right, still a monk right now, a very experienced one, and he led a two-week retreat here, and um, he said, he asked me, he said, 
why don't you sit in on some of, of my interviews, and then we can talk over uh, what I, uh, you know, how I handle it, and I'd be interested in how you would handle it. And so he did it in a very friendly, wonderful way. And there's one interview that you need to hear. A gentleman comes into the interview room, and Ajahn X hears him, and he says, I'm constantly having sexual fantasies about my wife. And this is like in the third and fourth day. So there's quite a bit of the retreat left. And he said, and it's, it's really hard on me. It just almost sitting after sitting, I'm having sexual fantasies about my wife. And Ajahn X, meaning well, there's a, for those of you who are newer to this tradition, there's a set of reflections on the unloveliness of the body. That it, and it, ha- it, it has its usefulness. Uh, like if somebody is sexually out of their mind, you know, just, uh, <laughs> you know, just, uh, it's an antidote to just uh, uncontrolled sexual desire. Because when you hear this, well, you'll hear, it has to do with reflecting, and if you do enough of it, it's a bit like metta, it gets stronger. And what you see is, you know, what's inside here? Pus, urine, feces, synovial fluid, blood, saliva, you, you know, did I say urine? Yeah. Okay. And it goes on. I think 30, 32 parts. Well, so he gives this to the guy. Okay. In other words, visualize your wife. <laughs> okay. So now if you're a celibate monk, it's, it's functional. That's skillful because you're, you're, you're abstaining from sex, but maybe you're at a certain age where you still have those juices cooking. And this is skillful because it helps neutralize that. And it's basically, okay. But this guy, so, so we come out and Ajahn X says, what, what would you have to say about that? And I said, very bad teaching. <laughs> say, you have to understand, this gentleman has to go home to his wife. And he comes home to what? A sack of feces, urine, pus? So... That's skillful if you're a celibate monk, and it's not the right medicine if you're a lay person. And so we have to. We need practices that, uh, since many of us are here because we've gotten wounded in relationship, or even we become monks and nuns because we've found living in the world very difficult. I'm not saying that in any condescending way. It is difficult, and that's one beautiful option to just step out of it. It's not like you get out of, there's still hardship when you're a monk or a nun. Um, but we have to learn how to live in relationship. We have to learn how to work. We have to learn not just one meal a day. We have to eat meals. We have to, uh, we have to dress well. We have a lot that we earn a living. How can we do that and at the same time wise up? That's the challenge. And next time we'll get into the, this thing about eating with King Pasanadi. That's not a bad technique, you know, kind of. <laughs> Leave it like cliffhanging, you know. <laughs> then they, they have to come to the next talk. <laughs> okay. Could we have a few moments of silence? While you're listening... So what did I say back? It's the direct looking into the mind practice that is not 
the 32 parts of the body for this yogi, but to actually just look at the fantasizing which are produced out of the mind, not to get rid of it, not to destroy it, but also not to drown in it. And of course, what that would do, it weakens it, it falls away without uh, harming the person's relationship to his wife. I'm not saying it's the, great, the perfect uh, solution. I don't know if it would even work. It depends on the person. But that's an application of looking into the mind. You get to know the mind and you can take care of it. May we all continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.